You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash eu-west-europe. My name is Phil Shackleton. I am uh, an instructor at the uh, Foster School of Business, but in um, my original uh, background is EU studies and was the managing director of the EU center there for for many years. So uh, my presentation today, as Ryan mentions, looks at how the EU is coping with the um, coronavirus uh, COVID-19 pandemic, but specifically how it impacts European solidarity and the future of the European Union. Now, I like to start with a little bit of history, and I want to go back ways in history, a few centuries, to a much earlier pandemic, and one that was much more devastating, and will all be familiar to you, the Black Death of the 14th century. And um, I start there because I like to talk a little bit about how previous pandemics have impacted Europe. And you, you'll know that uh, the, the Black Death uh, started uh, in, in Italy uh, with a ship coming from uh, the Black Sea carrying the plague to Sicily in the fall of 1347. And within weeks and months, it had spread across Europe through trade routes, um, sea, sea routes. And uh, within four years, by 1351, had killed between um, 30 and, and 60% of, of Europeans, European population, depending on location, had greater impact in some places than others. But um, so if we, we look at a third of uh, Europe, uh, European population dying, I mean, in a very short period of time, and you can imagine the impact. Uh, and there's this great quote here from Giovanni Boccaccio, um, which kind of captures uh, what it was like, and he lived through this, and he wrote about it. So he says, many died in the open street, others dying in their houses, made it known by the stench of their rotting bodies. Consecrated churchyards did not suffice for the burial of the vast multitudes of bodies, which were heaped by the hundreds in vast trenches, like goods in a ship's hold and covered with a little earth. So and you have this image here of people burying the dead, um, and you can imagine you know, this, people would be buried and then the people that were burying them would, would die. And you had abandoned villages, deserted villages. And um, so the psychic impact was huge as well as the, you know, uh, demographic and, and economic impact. And so it had a huge, the, the Black Death had a huge impact on Europe. And you have um, image here of the uh, unfinished uh, extension to the Siena Cathedral. It was planned to be one of the biggest uh, churches in Christendom. And they just abandoned it because of, for lack of labor. Uh, I think Siena lost something like 60% of its population. So that's, you get a sense of the impact. But on the, on the, on the plus side, there were some, some positive impacts of, of the plague in terms of uh, those who survived, their labor was worth much more. And so peasants and workers all of a sudden had more bargaining power and their wages went up. And this, the psychic and economic impact 
uh, on uh, Europe meant that there was a greater shift to uh, greater freedom for, for labor uh, and opportunity. Uh, and also the psychic blow to the you know, institutional order meant um, you know, the advent or moving towards the Renaissance. So here you have a humanist scholar, 14th century, moving into the 15th century and have the start of the, um, the Renaissance because the traditional you know, worldview has already taken this huge blow from the Black Death. So obviously this has had, the, the Black Death has had a huge lasting impact on, on Europe. Moving forward to last century, uh, you know, they had, of course, many other plagues in Europe, but I want to focus on the one that will echo uh, like today. It's very similar, and that's the Spanish flu of 1918-1920. And here's an image of people in Seattle, downtown Seattle, 100 years ago, just over 100 years ago, wearing masks. Uh, and the pandemic, uh, which is the, the Spanish flu, is the biggest pandemic in world history to date, killed between 20 and 50 million people worldwide, some estimates as many as 100 million. And they're not sure exactly where the Spanish flu emerged, uh, but they're, they're very certain it's not Spain. Some theories say Kansas, others uh, possibly France or, or even China, but it quickly, where it emerged, it quickly spread around the world. And because it came at the end of the First World War, uh, many of the belligerent countries, uh, France, Britain, United States, Germany, and others, they didn't want to talk about it. They, they didn't want to have it distract from the war effort. The publics were already under so much strain. And so, but in Spain, they could talk about it because Spain was a neutral power. And so the press was more free to talk about the, the Spanish, the pandemic. And in fact, their king, Alfonso XIII, got sick fairly early on in this. He survived, uh, but it meant that the Spanish media was talking about it all the time, and, or a lot more than the other countries. And so that's how it became known as the Spanish flu, because it was first really openly talked about in the media in Spain. Um, now, lasting impacts of the Spanish flu. Well, 700,000 Americans were killed as part of that, that broader global death toll. So it had a big impact in the United States as well. And the pandemic killed more people than uh, the First World War. Uh, but we, you know, it, so it's a huge demographic impact, although it's a percentage of the population, um, not as big globally as the Black Death in Europe was uh, for, for Europeans. Um, but it did have lasting impact in uh, promoting the first uh, make, you know, universal healthcare systems or the start of universal healthcare systems in Europe, and also greater emphasis on sports and health as um, people then started to think more about public health. And so you have uh, Alfonso XIII, for instance, uh, he started to support soccer after the end of the war. So he uh, gave his royal blessing, his royal seal to uh, Madrid's football club, henceforth named Real Madrid. So that's one of the reasons we have, um, you know, these royal uh, real teams in Spain is because they can want to support soccer at this time. So it's the memory of uh, the First World War, though, interestingly, that kind of eclipsed the Spanish flu. We've been talking about the Spanish flu more recently and, re you know, since the, the COVID-19 pandemic. For a long time, people weren't talking about it. It kind of got eclipsed by memories of the war, which is natural because, of course, uh, the war has had this very strongly green uh, impact 
on, on um, you know, the countries that went through it. And it's the memory of the First World War, and, and especially also then the Second World War, that informed the creation of the European Union and the process of European integration starting in the 1950s. So, and it was the desire by European countries to want to prevent another global conflict that would consume their continent that drove the, the, the original members of what was the European coal and steel community in 1950 to work together. So to build a system of cooperation that would avoid another great conflict. And in this original goal, it's been the, the EU has been remarkably successful. You know, today's EU has 27 member countries with a population of nearly 450 million people and a GDP of $19 trillion. So it's a huge economy. And a lot of this prosperity is, of course, anchored in the single market, which allows the free movement of people, goods, capital, and services. Uh, but there are many other successes uh, related to the European Union. So the, the, the continent is at peace, is democratic, enjoys the, the, the rule of law, uh, and uh, you know, great uh, rights, you know, so it is uh, a remarkable success story. And you also have, as part of this, everyone uh, knows is the Eurozone, the single currency, which is uh, one of the um, great achievements of European integration. And it in, uh, currently involves uh, 19 uh, EU members. So Europe uh, had over the last 70 years has been remarkably successful. And a lot of those big leaps forward in terms of European integration taking place in the 90s uh, and then around the turn of the millennium. Uh, but in the last 10 years, we've seen Europe encounter a series of crises, uh, starting with the European sovereign debt crisis that uh, emerged in Greece in 2009. Some people call it the Greek debt crisis, but it quickly spread to other uh, European countries, particularly Southern European countries, uh, after the um, uh, Great Recession. Uh, took hold uh, in Europe, and um, you know, as that had, you know, had a, has had a lingering effect across Europe, uh, a big crisis uh, for the continent and the EU and the, and the eurozone in particular. Uh, and as soon as the European sovereign debt crisis was starting to abate, you had the migrant crisis of um, uh, which peaked in 2015-16, where. Uh, tens of thousands of migrants were coming into Europe from uh, mostly war-torn regions of the Middle East uh, and, and um, uh, Asia, including, uh, of course, Syria from the Syrian civil war in Afghanistan, but also from North Africa, as well as uh, economic migrants coming in, streaming into Europe uh, across the Mediterranean most and the Aegean, uh, into Greece and Italy uh, in particular, uh, which were the countries that were in the front lines of the European debt crisis. So they're kind of a one-two punch on these countries, although then the, the migrants were then moving to Northern Europe, uh, and this created a challenge for the European Union about how to handle such a huge influx of people, which um, at one point was uh, you know, a million people. So uh, that was then the next crisis, and then those two crises, the sovereign debt crisis and the migrant crisis, then fed into the Brexit vote. Um, British people looking at the EU and seeing these problems, that helped push them to vote to leave the EU in 2016. There were other factors, of course. Britain has long had a kind of troubled relationship with the EU, a lot of Euroscepticism in the British population. Uh, but you can see how those other factors helped 
push Britain to vote to leave uh, by a slim majority in the summer of 2016. So that drama went on for several years, and it wasn't until early this year that Britain finally pulled out. They got it. They, you know, agreed on a deal that Britain would leave, and they're in kind of an uh, interim stage right now. But Britain formally left the EU in early, uh, early uh, part of this year, and just as soon as that's kind of finalized, you have the COVID-19 pandemic, which German Chancellor Angela Merkel says. Now, in my view, Europe, the European Union, is facing its greatest test since its foundation. So since the 1950s, she thinks the pandemic is the greatest crisis it's faced. And it builds upon all these previous crises, um, which is, um, you know, so it has been a very challenging decade for the EU that has, in many cases, kind of deepened or reinforced some of the divisions within Europe, say between the Southern European countries that have been in the front lines of some of these crises and the Northern European countries who feel that um, they're having to bail out the Southern European countries. So I wanted to have this background so you can see where the, you know, what Europe has come through when it's gotten to this point in dealing with the pandemic. Uh, and we'll come back to some of those divisions and, and the question of how these impact European solidarity at the end of the discussion. So let's though look at Europe's reaction to the pandemic, at least the initial reaction to the pandemic. And what we saw was EU nations turning inwards uh, to basically protect their own citizens. Uh, and this is kind of a natural reaction of nation states. You know, this is one of their principal roles is to protect their own citizens, prioritize their own uh, people. It's the role of government uh, or one of the main roles of government. And so what we had though was the European member states uh, in, that are in part of the Schengen area, the borderless area that mostly overlaps the EU, uh, they threw up border controls uh, rather willy-nilly, uh, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Um, so it, it didn't look good for the you know, process of European integration if EU countries and Schengen member countries were putting up borders against each other. Because remember, the free movement of goods and people uh, is a critical part of the EU. It's a great success of the EU. And it, the single market is dependent on the free movement of goods. Uh, there are no border controls normally between, you can drive from Portugal to Pol Poland without going through, going through a border check. It's a huge achievement. But the country started throwing up their borders. Uh, and as, what, you know, as they saw it slow the, the pandemic, it was something that they could do. You know, it was a natural kind of reaction in some ways. Even if you could argue it might not have been uh, that effective, it's what nation states felt they needed to do. And the outcome, though, was a lot of confusion. And it stopped not only people, but also goods crossing borders. And so here you had. Uh, this example of one of the traffic jams that emerged. This is a uh, nearly 40 mile traffic jam of trucks on the German-Polish border. And so all of a sudden you face the, the prospect of the European supply chains coming to a screeching halt, including for food and medical supplies. So in this context, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen goes on television to make an appeal to European publics and governments saying, we need to work together to find a system to allow at least the critical um, equipment 
and uh, goods to pass through the borders uh, with minimal uh, barriers. And, and the countries were able to work together and achieve this. They've started reopening the borders to, 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 to goods at least. Um, but already the damage is done in terms of symbolically and practically of, of you know, the, the kind of reimposing of borders in such a haphazard fashion. It really looks bad for the EU. And um, this kind of reaction where the nation states kind of put their own interests first and EU solidarity comes second. And uh, French President Emmanuel Macron commented on this during the crisis saying, what's at stake is the survival of the European project. The risk we are facing is the death of, of Schengen. Right? So one of the great achievements of European integration threatened if these countries keep their borders in place. And I should note that EU member states as part of Schengen or European members that are part of Schengen, European nation states that are part of Schengen, do have the right to reimpose borders in a, a, you know, a threat to national security or health. Okay, so they, do, they are allowed to do this, but it looks bad when they do it in such a haphazard fashion without working together. So that was the, that was the threat, that was the challenge. So initial response, not so great. They did work together uh, as time went on. It's kind of the same story when it comes to medical equipment and medical supplies. You'll remember that Italy was in the front lines of the uh, pandemic in the, in the early days. It really hit Italy hard, just like the Black Death in the 14th century, where, where the, the Black Death started in Europe. Um, and Europe, uh, it, Italian, the Italian healthcare system was uh, quickly overwhelmed. And they made an appeal to, the, the uh, Italian government made an appeal to the European partners to help them out, send equipment, send supplies, we, we need you right now. And not a single EU member state responded with a positive reply. They all said they needed to keep the equipment for themselves. In fact, some countries, including France and Germany, put export bans on medical equipment exports, critical supplies, because they said, we need to protect this for our own people. Um, now, eventually, Again, the European Commission steps in and says, we need to work together. This initial reaction where countries are pulling inwards, we, this is bad for Europe, we need to work together. And they did start to cooperate. So France, Germany, and the other countries um, eased up on those export bans and uh, supplies did go to the hard hit countries. Uh, and um, the, the European Union created like a ventilator stockpile, for instance, uh, and you even had, like in this picture here, um, German hospitals taking in French um, uh, COVID-19 patients because French hospitals were, uh, you know, under pressure and Germany had, German hospitals had uh, uh, more flexibility in space. So there was cooperation later, but again, the initial response, the nations turned inwards to focus on their own people and European solidarity came uh, second, and this, you know, had an impact in a lot of European countries. The, you know, the Italians uh, in particular felt that they had been uh, forgotten or let down. And uh, recent polls have showed that over 70% of Italians polled think the EU did not do enough for Italy in its time of need. And this quote from the Italian prime minister kind of captures that sentiment and the impact it's had on European solidarity. It says, if the EU does not live up to its vocation and its role in this historical situation, will citizens have more confidence in it 
or will they permanently lose it? So that's kind of one of the impacts. That's one of the challenges that's come out of the COVID-19 pandemic in Europe's response to it. It's a challenge to European solidarity. So another aspect we can look at is the economic response or the recovery response. And there's a lot of aspects to this, you know, a couple trillion euros uh, in, in, in funding, support for the unemployed, um, you know, various mechanisms that we're used to here that is trying to kind of at least keep our, our economy on life support or kind of get it uh, back up again after the crisis passes. Um, but the aspect that I want to focus on is this, this um, concept of uh, corona bonds or what's more accurately call, uh, called uh, shared or joint debt. So you'll remember from the Greek debt crisis, one of the things that came up uh, was this idea of euro bonds uh, that would be shared debt taken at the EU level that, that would be monies that would go to basically help uh, the Southern European co uh, countries that had been most uh, deeply impacted by the uh, sovereign debt crisis help their economies recover. Well, the same call went out during uh, in the, in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Countries like Italy and Spain were saying, we need some mechanism by which money is given to uh, uh, countries that are most deeply impacted. They need more aid. And this, would, to them, their proposal was shared debt, jointly, jointly taken debt. They're all, all EU members or Eurozone members would be responsible for. And this met initial resistance, much like the original call for Euro bonds did uh, during the sovereign debt crisis. So you again had this north-south divide where countries like the Netherlands, Denmark, and Germany were skeptical and here you have a quote from the Dutch prime minister. Um, I cannot foresee any circumstance in which the Netherlands will accept Euro bonds. This is against the design of the EMU, the European Monetary Union. So they're one of the traditional hardcore skeptic countries of any kind of shared debt because their position is, you know, we do not want to be a fiscal union. We are not going to be like the United States or other nation states to take out shared national debt to provide funds for our various member states. Uh, and so um, this has been a strong position by many EU member states because they think it's up to the individual nations to take out debt and pay for their own expenses, not a fiscal union, right? And we had this debate in the early American Republic, actually, which is an interesting comparison for, for any of you who teach US history. Um, but this, this, there's very kind of like there's the, the group of Northern European countries that are resistant to it. And then there's Southern European countries that have been more supportive of it, partly because that they would benefit from it. Interestingly, Germany under Angela Merkel, which has traditionally been skeptical of this, reached a compromise with, um, the, um, uh, French leadership, uh, French leader, Emmanuel Macron, uh, and, uh, so they came up with a deal that would have a portion of shared debt. Uh, and the final number that they agreed upon as part of a compromise deal was 450 million euros. Now that in the grander scheme of things is not a lot of money, okay? 450 million euros. And it, there's a lot of strings attached. 
uh, and it involves internal reforms and there's some deals for the, the some of the Northern European countries uh, in terms of rebates, et cetera. So um, it took a lot to get there, um, but, and it's not a huge amount of money in the big picture, but it's, it's almost like a crossing of the Rubicon in many ways, the, the idea of shared debt within the EU. And it was very difficult to achieve. And here you have uh, Angela Merkel and the president of the European Council um, kind of doing a COVID high five uh, after the negotiations have succeeded. And these were all night negotiations. Uh, and um, they did get a compromise. And, and this is kind of really the big step forward for European solidarity. They're able to get to do this uh, in, in this crisis situation. So, um, and here's a quote for the Spanish prime minister, kind of saying why he and other countries thought this was so important. This, he said this before the, the agreement, but in the lead up, he was kind of promoting uh, Euro bonds or what they were then being now called Corona bonds. Solidarity between Europeans is a key principle of the EU treaties, and it's shown at times like this. Without solidarity, there can be no cohesion. Without cohesion, there'll be disaffection and the credibility of the European project will be severely damaged. So, um, well, they got an agreement and they showed solidarity and um, we'll see what happens. But this is a really big step forward for European solidarity coming out of this crisis. So that's kind of the big picture about what Europe has done in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, what I haven't talked about is um, kind of the social impacts. And um, I, I just want to mention that kind of briefly, and it's obviously too soon to tell uh, what the long-term impacts will be on European society. Uh, but but you know, we do have um, some, some kind of, I think, historical precedent we can look at um, from, from, again, the Black Death and, and later plagues in Europe. And uh, here's a quote from um, Petrarch, another humanist scholar uh, who lived through this. And I just, it, I, I thought it was a kind of moving quote, uh, reflecting kind of, that would echo with contemporary audiences after, after having lived through the COVID-19 pandemic. In what annals has it ever been read, the houses were left vacant, cities deserted, the country neglected, the fields too small for the dead, and a fearful and universal solitude over the whole earth. Oh, happy people of the future who have not known these miseries and perchance will class our testimony with the fables. Um, yeah, well, uh, a moving quote uh, and uh, kind of captures obviously the sentiment of the time and it echoes with us today. Um, another thing I will just, I will point out is, you know, Europe got through the, 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 the Black Death in uh, later plagues. Um, and as I said, it, it, you know, it left a lasting mark, but these, these cities and nations um, move forward. And here, Venice, I think, is an interesting example, maybe in some ways kind of um, um, echoes with us hopefully today, is uh, this scene of the Venice canals. Venice was the city that developed the quarantine, uh, at least for Europe, the idea of a quarantine. And the name quarantine comes from the Italian word for a 40-day period, quarantina. So they discovered that if the ship was left isolated, first they tried 30 days and it didn't quite work. Then they went to 40 days. A ship was left isolated in port for 40 days, the plague would die out on the ship and wouldn't come to land. 
so they pioneered a quarantine for, for European cities and it obviously helped Venice survive the plague. And they had later outbreaks of the plague, but they survived. And this church, uh, the Church of Santa Maria della Salute, um, here on the canal was built after Venice survived its last uh, great plague outbreak in 1630 to celebrate overcoming that, that uh, outbreak. So again, I, I, I think this hopefully can make us feel positive that we're gonna get through this and Europe's gonna get through this, um, though we still don't know the full social impact uh, for, for uh, all our societies. So let me make a few concluding observations about uh, what the uh, pandemic and the response will mean for Europe and European solidarity. So as I mentioned earlier, the COVID-19 pandemic and the response has highlighted some of the weaknesses in European cooperation and solidarity, reinforcing some of those fault lines that we had in the original Eurozone crisis, uh, but also again in the migrant crisis where countries were you know, wanting to keep migrants out uh, or push them into other EU member states, right? So there's th these kinds of crises have shown the limits of European cooperation and solidarity uh, with in particular a kind of reluctance of the Northern European countries to you know, bail out Southern European countries. Um, and as I mentioned, the initial response was about countries protecting themselves. Kind of a natural reaction, but it doesn't look good for European solidarity if this is what countries do. Um, hopefully, and we're seeing good signs so far, that there'll be greater cooperation as these countries reopen. Um, the Schengen, they put out these borders within the Schengen area uh, to block uh, travel between them, uh, each of the countries. And, and those borders have been lifted now. Uh, there could be a few quarantine uh, rules between like, you know, I think uh, Britain, which is not in Schengen, uh, in, in continental countries. But m for the most part, uh, this was kind of a, a much more deliberate process, uh, reopening uh, Europe. And, and it, you, know, you almost had to have it that way. The European supply chains are so interconnected that if a factory in Italy stays closed or is stuck behind um, you know, borders, um, it is going to stop the whole supply chain that may be impacting, say, like a German car factory. Uh, and nearly 2 million Europeans travel across borders each day just to work. So it's important that they reopen in a coordinated fashion. And they've been better about that in the reopening rather than the initial response, which was uh, very uh, uncoordinated. Um, and, and the test will come if they're, you know, now we have this surge again. Um, and if it gets worse, if there's going to be this tendency to close borders willy-nilly again, hopefully not. Um, so we'll just have to wait and see. And so the, but the, in the bigger picture is, you know, we, it looked bad at the initial period of the lack of coordination and cooperation, but they, you know, European countries will continue to, to cooperate. They want to cooperate on borders. They want to co uh, cooperate in the response because they all um, benefit from this cooperation. Um, it's, it's, it's not something just done because of um, you know, generosity to their fellow member states. They all benefit from working together and they wanna make sure that the coordination is effective. Um, and sometimes it is inefficient. It is, uh, there is uh, poor cooperation or there are problems with that cooperation, but 
we also see possibility of deepening of European integration through crisis. And I think this debt situation, the shared debt shows that crisis can also lead to deeper co uh, cooperation and integration. Um, and then the finally is we do know that um, you know, some of the damage has already been done. That it, Italian, those Italian surveys, the public kind of show that. In terms of the EU's reputation and Europe's reputation, uh, there was already a populist movement within EU countries uh, in response to you know, globalization, or I should say against globalization, uh, against the, you know, the, the Eurozone debt crisis and the austerity, the migrant crisis. You know, this populist movement has built over time. This will probably give further fuel to the, to the populace, especially if the economy continues to lag. Uh, we're looking at a six to 10% economic drop this year, this year in European countries, depending on the, 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 the range, depending on the country. But you can see how that would fuel further populism. But so I think there's kind of like, you know, there's an optimist perspective, which would be like Europe deepens through integration and cooperation and the pessimist view, which would be, um, yeah, that the crisis is actually going to make this situation, cooperation and integration worse. It's going to, the long-term impact is going to be negative rather than, than positive. But I think here you'll see Angela Merkel is definitely with the optimist saying, despite all the uncertainties we face, one thing is already clear to me, Europe can emerge stronger from the crisis than it entered it. If we are to fulfill this aspiration, we must, in my opinion, be guided by one uh, leitmotif, uh, European cohesion and solidarity, especially in this pandemic. So we'll give, we'll give the last word to Angela Merkel and her optimistic view of the future, but we should all watch, let's watch it closely and, and just hope for the best. So thank you. Thank you.